For March 5th, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 505, A Buddhist Excellence of Sex Spying. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet, and we love to uh, hang out together and talk about the things that interest us. The movies, TV, music, books, and so forth uh, that are on our minds are so much more fun when we have fun together. I'm Matt Rather, and I'm here with my fellow Overthinkers, Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. And Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Hello, comrade. <laughs> now, now you might expect this being Oscar weekend that we would make a point about how the Oscars is a TV show of a stage play about movies. That's what we do every year. <laughs> but for a variety of reasons, we're, we're just going to take a pass on that this week, largely because, look, when we started overthinking it 10 years ago, we were young and energetic. We were, would, would it be fair, guys, to say that we were hale? I mean, you know, we were, <laughs> in the sense that we had only but one life to, to, give, to give for our country, to right? Give for, to give for our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like we've given it. I feel like <laughs> I feel like whatever life we had, we've we've put it into this podcast, and it's awfully late on the East Coast. We wouldn't get started till near midnight, you know, and and uh, these guys have to have to work tomorrow. So you know, um, I you know whether whether I mean. It just depends on how accepting the Academy is of fish sex that, uh, you know, what happens tonight at the Academy Awards. And we'll see, you know, whether we live in a new, healthier, more accepting America, accepting of fish sex or whether uh, whether, you know, the anti the, the America's long, dark anti fish sex history rears its ugly head tonight. <laughs> Well, I'm going to be at a Weird Al Yankovic concert tonight while the Oscars are on. Oh, right. Someone just, yeah, someone also, just at me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone just at me and let me know whether John Cena is there, because right. that's all I really care about, is whether the voice of Ferdinand the Bull makes an appearance. Because I would love to see if there's multiple wrestlers at the Academy Awards. I, I, I want to see the day where we have multiple WWE superstars competing for the Academy Awards. And this might be the best shot we've had since uh, Suburban Commando. For that to come <laughs> this uh yeah absolutely and, and the other thing just tweet at fenzelian uh fish emoji eggplant emoji check mark emoji or fish emoji eggplant emoji circle red circle with a line through it emoji <laughs> Uh, depending on uh, depending on what happens with the uh, the fish sex at at the Oscars. No, yeah, that was the other thing. Pete's going to see Weird Al. Um, so uh, so instead, we actually saw a movie. The sort of thing uh, the sort of thing that seems well nigh impossible these days in these days of declining box office attendance. I feel like the overthinking it podcast single handedly is keeping uh, American theatrical exhibition of motion pictures alive. And the movie we saw uh, was a movie that I had been – I'd actually been looking forward to uh, since I saw the um, – since I saw the trailer a few months ago. Uh, it is Red Sparrow starring Jennifer Lawrence, directed by Francis Lawrence, no relation that, that I know about. 
um, based on the book by Jason Matthews, the 2013 uh, novel by Jason Matthews, a former central intelligence agency. What do you call them? Agent? If you're in an agency, or does that make a you an agent? Spook, I believe he was a spook. A former, <laughs> former spook. Term. Yeah, I think you have to be in the in the like the covert service to like be to actually be a spook because if you're overt, uh, it's a lot less spooky. So I like spy movies. You know, I like things with twisty plots. I like to be surprised by the plots of of movies. Uh, it is the rare movie that can. Um, shock you with a uh with a, a plot twist right and this is not that movie but uh there were there were a couple of really good uh there are a couple of really good casting moments this movie uh shocked me with its guest stars or uh its uh co-stars i suppose a, l- a little bit its supporting cast so uh we will um we will get into all of that and you know spoiler alert for uh for red sparrow though though i can't say it's really more the movie is really more a, a, a sensuous experience than a, a plot-driven one, a narrative one, I would say. But we can get into all of that later. But first, uh, this week in uh, in automotive, this week in automobiles on overthinking it, I uh, I ended up. Um, <laughs> through a, a series of events that is too convoluted and, and kind of silly to, to recount, uh, I ended up in a program for influencers. Now, guys, I'll bet you didn't know that I'm an influencer. I never would have figured it out, that's <laughs> yeah. for sure. And, and did you know that you are also influencers, the two of you? Really? Yeah. Man, somebody tell Ooh. my fiance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because uh, we have a podcast with an audience of people who listen to it and social media channels and a website and YouTube and all the things, all the things that influencers have. We have those things. And apparently these conditions are not only necessary, they are also sufficient to make us influencers. And so... I got into I got into a program for influencers in which <laughs> I was offered f- for a few days the use of a Cadillac uh <laughs> car um to drive and then to talk about on uh the influencer channels. So, you know, for for a second, I I'd like to talk to you about the uh the Cadillac CT6. So, I I don't know how to talk about cars. I understand that they're a machine that allows you to go fast. So, I've asked my very good friends Pete Fenzel and Mark Lee uh to ask me questions that I can answer about my experience dry my experience as an influencer. You know, driving the Cadillac CT6 uh, 3.0 liter twin turbo platinum package sedan for the uh, uh, for most of for most of this past week. Take it away, Pete. I, I don't even know what to think about what to think. So the first thing that you have to consider, I think, when reviewing a car is, well, what's what's the hook that people would expect you to have for the car uh-huh. and then prove out uh, what is sort of different from your take on the car uh, 
that as opposed to the hook that might be expected. So when I think of a Cadillac, I think of, okay, it's going to be large. It's going to be square. It's going to be plush. It's going to have a certain status attached to it. But of course, this is kind of an issue because recently Cadillacs have moved more towards trying to compete with the German cars and have gotten sort of sportier and have gotten a little bit sort of sharper and less floaty. So, so I guess what I ask you, Matt, is that is there anything that you think that people might think that this car is good for that it isn't <laughs> um, that's that's interesting um there, there what's is the distance what's the difference I'm, I'm not asking about difference i'm asking about difference in the uh-huh. Derrida, Derrida sense right which is like what it, and i guess you could clarify that term a little bit too in this context the I, difference of the cadillac but the t- <laughs> <laughs> the uh, uh, le uh, le difference uh, de uh, Cadillac is um, yeah so so difference is is the word that Derrida uses uh, he changes the letter e to the letter a in difference it's not spelled difference it's spelled difference with an a but it's pronounced the same in French and so this was his sort of uh, silly joke about how uh, speech is not in fact superior to writing after all because you can't even even tell the difference between difference and you can't even tell the difference between difference and uh, difference and it it is an idea that borrow that bar not borrows that kind of builds on a long legacy of uh 20th century continental linguistics um about how meaning uh you know theories about how meaning uh is constructed by language and it talks and and it combines the idea of uh differing creating identity by being different from something, but that in doing that, you also defer to that thing. So I can say, I hate everything that Pete Fenzel likes because my tastes are exactly the opposite of Pete Fenzel's. I've, uh, I've, um, you know, differed from Pete, but I've also deferred to him because I've more or less made him the arbiter of what I like by, you know, making him the arbiter of what, what he doesn't like. I think that, um, uh, you know, I think the, the interesting thing to me is the, the kind of understatedness, um, of the, of the exterior, right? It's not, when, once you get in, the, the whole thing is, is almost unbelievably luxurious. I could, I could literally, I, I literally, uh, you know, was, was slack jawed with bewilderment as I, drove this thing on my my daily commute uh to and from work how uh you know how comfortable and how how fancy really every aspect uh, of this thing at this particular trim line uh was but but on the outside it didn't seem designed to call attention to itself it didn't seem to be like for a person um you know this this is uh this is for a person not who wants to call attention to their status as an oligarch but is comfortable being an oligarch behind closed doors where where no one knows about it right yeah. um it's a it's a sort of soup and i say oligarch this is a super luxury sort of super luxury good at least at the trim line that i got yeah, you're talking about a car that's competing with the Tesla Model S and the Mercedes S-Class, both of which, when you see them on the road, give you a very clear 
punctuated impression of what the person behind the wheel of the car wants you to think about them. Sure. Whereas the Cadillac, looking at the fascia, is seems even less kind of aggressive and proving of itself than the other large General Motors sedans, like like even the Chevy Impala, which has more of a kind of aggressive grill than the Cadillac does and sort of similar kinds of body lines. So that's interesting. So what we would think here is that we are deferring to the legacy of Cadillac and somewhat have to. And understanding the CT6 in both difference from the legacy of Cadillac and in deference to the legacy of Cadillac, it seems somewhat understated, even though it is a large 400 horsepower twin turbo V6 uh, sedan. Uh, did you did you experience driving it quickly? I mean, did I? <laughs> Do you experience driving sense? it quickly or slowly or driving it sideways, like turning it side to side as you were driving? <laughs> these are the kinds of things. These are the kinds of questions that are addressed in car reviews and endless proliferation. Oh, I see. And, it does everything yeah. you need it to do, Pete. <laughs> it goes forward. It goes left. It goes right. It goes back. Did you do a three point turn at a parking lot? <laughs> I, I did. Uh, it's a little large. It's I mean, it's a little large for a three point turn in a parking lot. But I did hang a Yui in my street, which is not a a wide boulevard by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, uh, I drove it really fast, perhaps inadvisably fast. Uh, and it goes, uh, here's another thing you wouldn't expect about it. If you switch on the uh, the sports handling, the suspension and the you know response, the, uh, the acceleration is a little more assertive, uh, you know, a little less concerned with comfort and more with performance. And uh, the handling becomes a little tighter. Uh, I drove it up PCH a little bit because that's what happens in car commercials and like the Pacific you know, Coast Highway, right? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's a that's a thing that we say in Los Angeles. PCH. Just like uh, instead of uh, Interstate 10, we say the 10, and instead of Interstate 405, we say the 405. So I drove it up. Uh, I drove it up the PCH, and uh, yeah, and, and uh, hugging all those hugging all those turns of the coastline as as it was it was going up, and it was you know it was actually here's another thing it was sort of surprisingly it was surprisingly fun to drive now it had a bunch of stuff uh, that I had never experienced before, but now i don 't even know how I could live without these things uh, like I, I feel like an animal um, go, <laughs> living living without them uh, one um, one is that uh, the uh, the uh, what the it stops when you get too close to something it it stops you right like and that's a feature that that new cars have now i just don't happen to own a new car and then it it warns you if you get too close on the left or the right uh there's a little indicator light that that flashes if it's if it thinks something's in your blind spot when you're when you're changing lanes um so that if you are you know uh not practicing a good habit and you try to you try to change um you try to change lanes just looking at the side view mirror without actually looking behind your shoulder. You can uh, you can see that there's a little indicator light that it that it will sense. And then finally, um, not only does it have a, a backup camera, it has forward cameras for parallel parking also, and that that can be just as much of an issue, like knowing where the the nose of the car actually ends. Um, and a, uh, uh, I mean, and if it just had that, Dayenu, it has a 360 degree uh, above, like bird's eye view of the car done by stitching together fisheye cameras around. If it just had that, Dayenu. But then, when you get as you're parking, if you get too close to anything, it uh, it buzzes your seat. It has a rumble pack, and your butt. <laughs> 
<laughs> your butt actually vibrates bzz, uh, to let you know that you are you are approaching an obstacle. And so that uh, it was uh, it was an interesting experience. I don't I don't uh, you know I don't I, I've not really had a lot of experience driving luxury cars before, and it was a fun thing to do. So let me ask you one last question on it, Matt. For both the car and for yourself. If you wanted someone to truly know it, someone to truly know Matt Rather and someone to truly know the Cadillac CT6, would you give it a picture of the outside or a picture of the inside? Oh, the inside, for sure. <laughs> for both. Oh, uh, no, uh, for me, uh, for me, it would be a picture of the outside, perhaps on a beach somewhere you know, uh, <laughs> at, enough, at sunset. Enough. Fair enough. And but for the but for all the 360 degree fish eye environmental, you know, it looks like a drone's flying above you so you can see everything. Rumble pack awareness of the outside world. What the Cadillac really does for you is drive within is what you're saying. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Well, that's a, it's not something we get to do a lot on the Overthinking It podcast. We're not uh, uh, we're not frequent targets of of marketers. So thanks for bearing uh, thanks for bearing with us. I hope uh, it was a little fun for you, Mark. Do you have a last question before we get off this topic? I do. Now, Pete, of course, is overthinking his resident automobile expert. Um, I am overthinking his resident uh, urbanist. So, as such, I have to ask you, Matt, why not just take public transportation? I, have you heard what Elon Musk says about public transportation? He's digging uh, he's digging holes under the cities because people apparently would rather ride on an individual like uh you know computerized transport in a tunnel underground rather than share space with their fellow citizens. Oh, so, so you take your Cadillac. You take your Cadillac or your Tesla and you drive it underground. Uh, into the transporter pod. Yeah, your 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 Mercedes S class, your BMW five series. You do wow. you know a lot of these things. You know you drive into a darkened tunnel. You know uh, denuded of any specificity or any um, you know contact with your fellow man, and you sit alone in in your pod or or actually probably like radio reception. <laughs> Certainly no satellite radio reception down there, right? And you sit you sit alone in the comfort of your pod as you are uh, transported from from one place to to another i mean that's that's the tesla that's the way of the future you know oh man we're Has- screwed hashtag boring <laughs> company <laughs> all right now from a, a sumptuous garden of earthly delights to a uh sensationalist and and lurid spectacle uh of uh of flesh broken and abused, battered, and uh, will-bent to the will of the state. Or is it? I'm talking about Red Sparrow, starring Jennifer Lawrence, in which we are told very early on by a character who I think we are meant to believe, uh, or at least believe that that she believes this, and, and that uh, the Russian government believes this as well, that the Cold War never ended, it just shattered into a million pieces. Mark, were you aware that there, rather than the Cold War going on, there were a, t- a, a million tiny shards of Cold War going on anymore? I think we all learned that uh, the hard way with uh, finding out that millions of Russian trolls were <laughs> corrupting uh, American discourse and, uh, you know, putting on, you know, waging their own individual little Cold Wars, not so much coordinated from on high, but just like, being set out to individually troll America. Uh, so in that regard, sure, yeah, I believe that. Cold War, the singular Cold War, sort of the you know two hegemonic superpowers uh, being pitted against each other has fragmented into something less easily defined 
um, and, uh, and and less mappable to big powers in the way that we thought about them back in the eighties. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, did, did it, did it strike you as a, a, a relevant movie geopolitically? I mean, did it, did it, I don't know. Did it, so you're saying it kind of mapped for you onto current concerns about uh, conflicts among superpowers. Oh, that line certainly evoked the larger struggle, right? I think we'll, we'll talk more about this later, but the movie is very much more a personal story, personal struggle between uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character, Dominica, and her uncle, Vanya. Hmm, might be something going on there. Um <laughs> But uh, just to sort of give some context to this, right, Um, this movie is coming out in early 2018, uh, like a year and a half or so after um, Russian influence in the 2016 presidential election really entered into the mainstream. Um, It enters it's in the context of uh, decades of the most recent political tension between the United States and Russia, right, with uh, Vladimir Putin. Of course, uh, you know, trolling the United States uh, and the Western world for uh, for a couple of decades or so, um, and it comes in the context as well of the our generation, the millennials, if you will, uh, who grew up with the Cold War, the last generation who grew up with the Cold War, memories of the Cold War, and grew up with Russia, the sense as an adversary, only with a brief interlude of them, uh, quote unquote, being our friends, as John Connor uh, said to the Terminator in Terminator Two. Um, going even further back than that, though, um, because, you know, if there's a small sense of whiplash, historical whiplash for people like us who remember the Cold War and then had this brief moment in the 90s when we thought that we'd get along with the Russians and then went back to being enemies with them, uh, the, the, the West, which I say like United States or really mapping back to Western European countries have long, long been at odds with Russia. And there has been a historical tension between uh, these two sort of cultural spheres uh, that goes back to, I'd say, I don't know what, the Middle Ages, medieval times, uh, through certainly through um, sort of the early modern European state. And if you go back and read about history and, and attitudes from the time, you'll see that uh, the Western Europeans, the British, the French, and so on, uh, didn't really consider the Russians to be European. They saw them more as Asiatic for lack of a better word, and that gave the Russians a big chip on their shoulder. Um, on one hand, they wanted to be a part of this Western culture. Like, I think believe the court of uh, Ivan the Terrible, or one of the early czars, um, had his court to speak French because he wanted to be more integrated into that world, uh, that European world. While at the same time, of course, they were inevitably set apart um, because of the vastness of Russia and strictly its Eastern territories and how it faces away from the Western European uh, centers of power such as Paris or London, that sort of thing. Um, so all that is to say, you know, this moment that we're in 2018 with a movie with uh, where the Russians are decidedly the bad guys and are out to get us and the Americans are the good guys who want to um, try to help save the world. Um, this didn't happen. Um, this didn't happen overnight. It didn't even happen, you know, sort of as a recapitulation of the Cold War from the 20th century. It goes back uh, centuries upon centuries. So here we are. Russians are bad guys, right? <laughs> That's simple, huh? Yeah. So to go into this a little bit, one of the interesting phenomena, I think, when you're considering the emergence of Russia as a quote unquote world power is that it happens in the 18th century for the most part, when this is the era of Peter the Great and Catherine the Great and the the real modernization and turn westward of at least the Russian political 
yeah. mechanism, it, even though the actual modernization of Russia as an economy and as in a country would, would generally have to wait until later on in the you know, Bolshevik Revolution and such. It is, and of course, we're spouting a lot of history, which you know you may agree with, you may disagree with. This is not a topic that is absent of controversy. But the rise of Russia as a great power coincides with the upending of European aristocratic domination of uh, kind of monarchical regimes, sort of the Ancien Regime, the French Revolution, and the rise of, I guess, what you might call bourgeois or bourgeoisie, uh, but what you also might think of republics or uh, constitutional monarchies where the role of the old hereditary authorities has been much diminished. And so it's interesting to think about the context of what the state is when you're thinking about the kind of the haves and the have-nots. Are you a have? Are you a have not? Is your state a have? Is your state a have not? What does it mean to be a really prominent and powerful and political Russian in Europe when you see yourself as a have not, but you are yourself a have above the people around you, wherein the whole rest of the world is also going through this tumult of who are the haves, who are the have nots? How are we going to kind of reorient the way that power is adjudicated? And I think you talked about how Red Sparrow is kind of a personal movie. And I guess you, you could definitely say that that it turns out that the ostensible plot of the movie is more of a personal plot than the movie would allow you to believe. But I, I think one of the interesting things about the movie is that people do attribute a greater or lesser degree of their of their action in this movie to the state. Different sorts of players have different sorts of feelings about the state. But the actual the, the state's actual mechanisms, you, you don't really see them. The state doesn't act as an institution at any point in the movie that I can recall, except insofar as much as it sends assassins in through windows. But there's no like like you never see you see like alleyways and car chases, but it's all adjudicated by people. And the abstraction of the state seems mostly to be in the form of like the curtains and and the form of like the pressure that individual people get put under by other people. And so you wonder one thing I was wondering during that big speech you're talking about at the Red Sparrow School. So for those unfamiliar with the movie, Jennifer Lawrence is a ballerina. And of course, this is the Bolshoi Ballet, which is a great emblem of grand Tsarist Russia. It's a very peerlessly beautiful ballet venue, you know, very famous. And they actually uh, they actually did CGI to put Jennifer Lawrence's face on the body of a actual ballerina so she could do some pretty solid ballet. And uh, and and, it, and she is she is shattered. She is like physically shattered by a nefarious deed by her fellow baller, her ballerino, as it were, shatters her leg in what appears to be an accident, but turns out to be planned. And she gets thrust into the world of espionage as her only way to to help her ailing mother. It's kind of a Breaking Bad situation where it's a combination of the desperateness of her situation, the degree to which the government doesn't help her out. She appears to have no workers' compensation insurance. You know, like full disclosure, I work in workers' compensation insurance. So like that would help her situation greatly. She appears to have no sort of like, she's not suing the ballet or the government or her employer uh, or the guy for a livelihood to take care of this woman who clearly needs to be on some sort of public assistance. Uh, she has no recourse. The state is absent in terms of helping her. And so she goes to work for the state in order to get the resources that you would think that the state would provide in the first place. And in this sense, I think there's a, there's a sense that she doesn't trust the state at all, and the state doesn't really trust her. And so she acts in the interest of the state sometimes, but part of what creates the sort of double-crossing feel is 
or the, the sort of potential double crossing energy that this movie has is how much do these people actually owe to their countries? The, the, the CIA guy also is kind of betrayed by his country um, in that he's recalled from an assignment where he's protecting an important source. And he apparently has no family at home. He has nothing to go home to. For all the great stuff that America provides, it seems to not have provided much for him other than the regular use of a swimming pool and an assortment of wool and outer garments. Yeah, but he's, uh, a, which, you know, he's a loose cannon, Pete. He's a loose yeah. cannon. You know, <laughs> he's he got to turn in his gun and his badge. You know, <laughs> Is he, though? Uh, does he go rogue? I'm not even really clear on whether he goes rogue in this movie or whether he just sort of negotiates with his boss, being like, look, nobody really cares what we well, do. We no, should it's just not, do something it's, slightly different than what we're doing now. It's called Red Sparrow. They, they don't go rogue. They go rouge. <laughs> but I guess the upshot is it seems like the state is offering is trying to offer a sense of direction and a, and a sort of power structure for people who are kind of cut adrift by circumstances, except the paradox is that the failure of the state as an institution is what has caused people to feel adrift in their circumstances. And that and so the, the right. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, there's of a, Sparrow School. Yeah, exactly. exactly. There's a lot of false consciousness when Charlotte Rampling, by the way, just one of, of many great casting decisions uh in in this movie um charlotte rampling says you know uh russia has has fed you has nourished you has kind of reared you up and now asks something in return for you uh as they uh, as she's training these attractive young people to be essentially like sex spies right like uh to be sort of psychologically manipulative uh resourceful individual agents who can extract uh information or get uh, compromising things on uh you know various kinds of targets by by having the the sexy time with them um and this involves i mean and this involves a a sort of abnegation of self that is uh I mean, it's not. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of there's a lot of threads uh, in the film that sort of add up to a theme. I, I think it's not. I think it's not totally totally coherent. But right, the the sort of abnegation of self is presented as a, a way of serving the interests of the state. Though though the state is conceived of as kind of not. Um, not the sum total, not the, not the kind of like Voltron of citizens, right? But, uh, but rather as, an independent entity with its own interests that may or may not align with yours, right? Like the state gave you this. Now the state is asking for, for something back, not like you can, you know, serve everyone else. It's, it's sort of conceived of as, as separate from, from, you know, here comes everybody. Uh, but, but there's also, there's also a sort of odd moral dimension to it where it's, it's an almost kind of Buddhist excellence of sex spying, you know, that, uh, that's at stake where, where Jennifer Lawrence won't really, she's, you know, it's as she does, even as she sort of excels in sex spy school, right? She doesn't, she doesn't do the sex with enough gusto or enough like abandonment of self, you know? Um, and, and that, and Charlotte Rampling is, is really after her for not, uh, you know, not wanting to, uh, not wanting to sort of give over herself completely um, for you know the the for service to the state, but also there's there is an odd sort of personal dimension to it, and I think it's this you know it's this sort of this very 
very icky, this very icky theme of kind of molestation by proxy where her uncle is clearly uh, interested in her sexually and that sort of puts her through a variety of, uh, of tortures of the flesh over the, the course of the movie where this is, you know, this is a, almost a, uh, you know, almost a, a sort of abuser's logic of like, you know, you have to, you have to kind of give yourself over, you know, yeah. um, and is, is oh, a little yeah. creepy on that score. Yeah. So like on one hand, the state is saying we fed you, we clothed you, we took care of you now give back to us, but they never fed you. They never clothed you. They never took care of you. Yeah. They're lying. And at the same time, so that's one sort of angle this movie takes. And then the other angle is the family members, the uncle, who's a young guy, a little bit older than Jennifer Lawrence, but like clearly a younger sibling of her parents is is wants to exploit her sexually and, and offers her these various sorts of favors, but they end up not really being favors. They are horrible degradations and uh, and exploitations. And so and he tries to maintain the status of, oh, I'm giving you all this. I'm giving you this opportunity. I'm saving your life. I've put you in this situation where you only have one choice. Aren't you grateful for me for allowing this to happen? And I mean, I I lost count of the number of times that Jennifer Lawrence's character is tortured at the hands of her uncle directly or indirectly over the course of this movie. But but it's interesting to see the relationship, the familial relationship back to something of a microcosm for the state to the individual relationship. And the idea of there being a gap that that is really what I would say is the overarching. It's a movie that doesn't so much have an overarching theme as an overarching symbol to me, which is that it's the gap, the emptiness. The emptiness is both the emptiness that is in a person's emotional state that allows them to be exploited by somebody who can give them what they need. So that's a kind of emptiness. The emptiness is also the failure to achieve within whatever source of social structure you belong, the kind of safety and sense of belonging that would earn your loyalty. Like that's an emptiness, the sort of this sort of gap and failure in family relationships, state relationships. Uh, the emptiness is also present visually in kind of pools and holes in walls. And then almost every shot, there's a character having an important conversation. There's like a window or a door like right over their shoulder. And of course, the emptiness is female social uh, sexual power. It's the Yoni, right? The Yoni Yonic symbol of and it's of the uh, is this a movie that's trying to turn on its face the I or turn upside down rather. I, it's hard to say these things without sounding suggestive given the subject matter, but I am being somewhat serious that yes, this is a movie that Jennifer Lawrence has made and chosen to make in response to sexual degradation that she has suffered in public. And it is both symbolically, thematically, and kind of on the surface, a movie about a sexually exploited and degraded woman who ends up using her sexuality as a weapon against others. And the idea that it is not a penetrating that she does, but like a nothing, that there is a nothing that is used, that is weaponized. Then this is in the Shakespearean yeah. sense of nothing. There is a there is a cup that's weaponized. There mm-hmm. is there is, you know, a hole in the wall. There's a shower that's there's there's it's all about these sort of symbols of the, the female sexuality and, and not in a sort of identity sense, but like the physical sexual components of the woman used as a weapon against others in much the same way that the male sexual components are like physicalized into sticks and swords. This is a movie where the guns don't work. Right. But 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 the shower does. 
uh, and it tortures you. But anyway, yeah. Mark, I heard you coming in there. Yeah, no, let's just lay lay bare, lay bare. Um, the very uh, uh, the most affecting or the most affecting and very early example of this in the movie for those who haven't seen it. Right. Uh, I think we're all talking about the same thing here, which is the uh, one they're in Sparrow School. Um, a, gener- a character tries to rape Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, she beats the crap out of him in the shower. Um, and then they are essentially, you know, put forward in, in front of the in front of the classroom. And Jennifer Lawrence is told to give the man a blowjob. It kind of, as you know, as the ongoing course of uh, degrade, d- degrading and you just sort of removing senses of shame and sexual morals. Well, Mark, they got to build they got to break you down before they can build you back up again. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, haven't we all been there in our training and our relative in our uh, training montages of our lives? No, we haven't. Thank God. Um, not to that level, at least. Um, so Jennifer Lawrence is told to give this uh, band a blowjob. She flips this on its head, if you will. Uh, she gets st- uh, takes off her clothes. Um, sits on a table and and she is shown like uh, you don't see it but uh, she, she spreads her legs and basically you know tells her to uh, to have sex with him on the spot and he shamefully can't get it up and then just kind of like you know zips up his pants puts his clothes back on and just storms out of the classroom uh, it really upset uh, that I feel like really um, it's I'm gonna call the Downton Abbey moment of this movie because it's so on the nose, but it really uh, telegraphed. This is what this movie is about. This is what it's doing, and this also ties into the uh, the, the broader Jennifer Lawrence meta narrative that you're talking about. It was uh, it was something else to watch. It was uncomfortable, and it was affecting. You know, if you're, this if is you an complain extremely about, yeah. uncomfortable movie, super extremely yes. uncomfortable. If yeah. you do not like uncomfortable movies, do not see it. <laughs> that is, if you don't like hard vomiting, don't see it. Right? Like it's it is very graphic and uncomfortable. I feel like we have to say that up up. Like pretty early on, just to get that clearly across to everybody, it is a brutal, but very. You're totally right, Mark. That that's like the justice. That's like the 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 gesture in the movie that is emblematic of what the movie is trying to present in terms of its discourse of power. The degraded woman who, if she is able to sort of seize control of her own body, is then able to weaponize it against others to their humiliation and shame yeah. to revisit the humiliation and shame that's been put on her onto others uh, as part of being in this morass of kind of dysfunction failure to help each other uh and success at kind of like dominating each other yeah various, sure the, the you know. i mean and it's it's really it's interesting because it's sort of it 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 reveals kind of a gap or a hole in in patriarchy right like it yeah. it reveals one one of the best one of the most interesting feminist uh social critiques i've i've ever heard um is very pithy and it's that that patriarchy is the attempt to replace the penis with the phallus right okay. that is to say that that is to say is the attempt to kind of take the actual you know vicissitudes lived experiences uh highs and lows of of being a man right and and replace any aspect of like reality with a kind of a mystical vision of power right <laughs> rather than uh uh, you know, rather than, you know, I don't know, just another sort of fleshy human and kind of the relationship of this movie with flesh, with like skin, you know, with Oof. bones, with, you know, stuff like that. Like there's a pretty when she breaks her leg, there's a, a pretty gross shot of her broken leg on the floor, uh, like of, of her lying on the floor with the, the bone bent in, in all kinds of unnatural positions. Um, when when, you know, the Russians begin to think that she might be conspiring with the Americans. Americans, which um, 
which she is, but which they wouldn't have known if the Americans hadn't screwed up a thing. Uh, she is, you know, subjected to a whole bunch of brutal tortures in the name of interrogation, including being beaten with sticks and, uh, uh, you know, being uh, held in, in, you know, uncomfortable positions and having, I'm sure, extremes of temperatures of showers, like, shot at her and loud music and lights and, you know, the the, the whole, she gets the full zero dark 30. And, uh and um and then like being you know uh, threatened with threatened with execution you know by gun to the head uh and and then it turns out the gun is not the gun is not loaded but that that like um there's a lot of sort of flesh in this movie and the kind of the the the, the false consciousness Pete that you're talking about or the kind of the the uh the um you know what the failure to actually take care and the kind of the insistence that the state has taken care is kind of like the hole in the is kind of like the hole in patriarchy right like because in you know the the whole uh point of sparrow school is like you into you learn to kind of intuit what people want what their vulnerabilities what their needs or their vulnerabilities are and then to exploit these people to exploit these vulnerabilities to extract information from them and uh there is i mean you know it's it's mostly there for lurid reasons to see Jennifer Lawrence get naked on a table, but but there actually is a pretext in the plot for this scene, which is that you know your job is to figure out what this guy wants and and give him what he wants, and and I, there's also a little bit of like oh you think you think your classmate you think your uh, you know rapist classmate is bad wait till you get out there in the real world and meet some of the people you're gonna be you're gonna be uh, you know, trying to extract information from. Um, but the, the thing is like the, the nominal point of that scene is sort of figure out what he wants. And what she says is what he wants is power. And when, when she, uh, when she sort of invites penetration directly, right. And there's no, I mean, there's almost no delicate way to say this. So I'll, you know, just do it. When she invites penetration directly, not from a submissive or subordinate position right she reveals that it's not the phallus after all right right that it's like that uh and that's the whole you know that's the whole in in that's the whole in patriarchy that there's a not and uh, this is not sort of blame the victim logic but that there is a, a it's an illusion that we all have to stringently police our participation in and once you stop doing that you know, uh, it it destabilizes the whole system. Right. One of my, my favorite parts of this movie, one of my favorite little details is the empty spaces underneath tables. Yeah. <laughs> the empty spaces between the legs of tables, <laughs> which <laughs> there's a point where she goes to the CAA guy's apartment and she's looking for stuff. And you think that it's she's searching for bugs. What it turns out she's actually searching for is uh, DNA evidence that she can plant on her uncle so that it appears that the uncle has been meeting with the CIA agent instead of her. Uh, and she ends up finding it in the form of a whiskey glass. But she looks under his table and there's this long shot of the, the emptiness between his legs with this sort of like you would almost expect there to be some sort of phallic object there. But it's not because the the, the sort of uh, complete power, the sort of complete instrumental power 
power that's associated with patriarchy is is a construction. It's not a biological fact of manhood. But manhood includes the same kind of vulnerability that womanhood includes, right? And these these are all constructions in this sort of gender narrative. But the idea that just being being a sort of man in the power sense does not make you uh, does not make you ha- not have absences or emptinesses or holes in your emotional life, in your personal life, weaknesses, vulnerabilities. Uh, even when you're, even when the state promises you that it will inure you to these sorts of uh, of sort of under the radar attacks. And then there's the situation where she actually uses a secret cabinet under a table to hide the. For some reason, floppy disks with uh, like I don't know why this movie. Has wait, floppy wait, disks I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Pete. Did you say floppy disks? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Are, so, so this is the I don't know. I can't think of a movie that takes place in the last decade, and this movie definitely does because there's like a pre-refresh current generation Ford Focus that almost hits her at one point. Uh, This movie takes place somewhere between 2011 and the present. Probably the present, because I think that BMW was pretty new, uh, that she rides in through the snow. But, uh... But there's floppy disks in it. I can't think of a movie that takes place this recently that has floppy disks prominently featured. And you've got to think that there's there's a scene where she's taking floppy disks with American military intelligence and hiding them in a compartment between the legs of a table. <laughs> and, she, and it's funny because she's got both the potent floppy disks, the ones that have real information, and then the sort of impotent floppy disks, the one with fake uh, information which are which are encrypted in such a way as to uh, lead the reader to believe that they are uh, what from the CIA, like that they're plants from the CIA. There's right. ones that are actually from this corrupt senator's chief of staff, and then there are ones that are doctored to make it look like they are plants from American intelligence, uh, and, and they're swapped. And so, yeah, so it's really interesting to think about the the insertion of the floppy. As as a like demonstration of the ultimate failure of patriarchy to truly subsume and replace uh, manhood as a sort of social and biological phenomenon. Uh, it's just it's interesting. Interesting that you would think we would uh, see all these things come together. Uh, and and I think she at one point tries to put the floppy disk into a laptop that's narrower than the floppy disk is, and I think that's a problem. <laughs> but there are various technical problems with the movie, not the least of which is the terrible accents that everybody has, and the fact that sometimes they speak in Russian and sometimes they speak in English uh, with a with Russian a accent. Russian accent. <laughs> Actually, can I remark on that real fast? Just yeah. so right before they go out to dance. Uh, and they do the ballet right before they do the ballet part. The primo ballerino comes up to the prima ballerina and I know that you're not actually a primo ballerino, but you are a ballerino and says, uh, ni and, and she responds, right, which is Russian for no fuzz, no feathers to the devil, which is a colloquialism. It's an idiom that refers to good luck. Right. It's a good luck by way of bad luck. Yeah. Break, uh, a, yeah, like, break, break a leg or something. There like you that. go. Like, yeah. so yeah. Ah. Why that's the she then proceeds to immediately break her leg. So you got to think <laughs> that that was a, a very tough moment because you wonder why do they say that line in Russian and not have subtitles, whereas all the other time the Russians are speaking at home. They're talking in English with Russian accents. One is that you can't directly translate it to English because uh, it, it's the idiom doesn't make sense. You know, no fuzz, no feathers. What does that mean? You could say good luck, but that doesn't really correspond to it. And if you were to say break a leg, that's just way too on the nose. That's like that's like commando style. But you're going to have to blow off some steam, right? like <laughs> break a leg out there. Bam. Right? Like yeah. too much even for this movie, which is a movie of too much. 
Yeah. So, so something else as well about uh, we should touch upon the language piece a little bit more, which is that, um, you know, my first my brain was like, huh, it's a little bit odd that the Russians are speaking in English with the Russian accent instead of speaking English. But, you know, back to the whole point about this being, uh, at least from my perspective, you know, a highly personal movie and this being, you know, from the perspective of Jennifer Lawrence's character. Uh, and it's really more, much more of a character study than it is other things. Um, you know, the, the reason why they speak English instead of Russian is to avoid the inevitable alienation that comes from speaking a foreign language and having text subtitles beneath the screen, right? There's the sense of other, there's a sense of a barrier that is erected between characters that uh, you don't have when there's just, you know, your brain, you, uh, um, uh, uh, suspension of disbelief kicks in and you just accept that, okay, I, they're, they're speaking Russian in here, but, uh, you know, it's just this accent and everything, and I will just accept it. Um, as an interesting uh, counterpoint, or at least companion piece, I will point to the Tom Cruise Nazi-killing movie Valkyrie, in which the same thing, same idea took place, right? Uh, for those of you who haven't seen that, that's Brian Singer's movie about the 1944 attempt to assassinate Hitler, in which a variety of American and British actors play nazis and they don't speak this german accent they just speak like i'm tom cruise i'm an america i'm i am you know uh german guy and i'm gonna try to kill adolf hitler kind of thing uh, meanwhile bill nighy is also in this movie it is like are we going to kill adolf hitler um that might not be the best example in that it, the sort of the, the confluence of accents creates a uh a bit of whiplash but the same notion is there is that we're not we don't want to have this alienation. We want to just take the characters as they are, appreciate them and have that experience with them. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that has to just do with how translation works. And people make this assumption that translation is about translating words. It's not. It's about translating meetings. So words are a tool. But if you just translate the words, you're not going to actually know what people mean, such as right. no, fuzz, Nipuran, no, no, fuzz, no feathers, no, fuzz, no feathers. <laughs> right. So like the idea. So speaking with a Russian accent in English has a meaning that's associated with it. And the meaning is that you're in like red heat with Arnold Schwarzenegger or that you're, <laughs> you're like Boris and Natasha. It means that you're the villain of the movie and you're, you're plotting something. And the idea of like, yes, we will go and we will do this. It, 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 it uh, ascribes to my, uh, my theorem of uh, as time approaches infinity, all accents approach Wario. She's just like, yes, yes. <laughs> We're going to do it. Yeah. Which is just like putting on a foreign accent in the context of an American movie is a way of identifying yourself as either sort of insincere or sinister or on the wrong team in some way. That's what it means. I, it does not for a second create the impression that any of these characters were actually Russian. Nobody believes watching this movie that Jeremy Irons is actually a Russian general. <laughs> this, this movie takes place in a, a suspended late 80s idea of russia yeah it takes it takes place in the masterpiece of verse a little bit right yeah <laughs> exactly exactly but like i could totally see this movie just tra just why not just have them speak with their regular accents i i totally get where that guy whose name i'm not going to mention uh got you know why he approached valkyrie why having those speak because it's showing you behind the scenes con uh, conversations where nobody having the conversation would have thought this is a, a foreigner this is a friend of mine. This is somebody I know and work with. I, I, the way I should hear them should be the way that I hear people who are friends of mine that I know and work with. And the way that that works with language is that people who you identify with people who speak with, to you in a familiar way, which I know is is uh, ends up being 
uh, ethnocentric and ends up having political problems associated with it. But to ignore the phenomenon entirely uh, for the sake of political po- politics would, I think, uh, be to make yourself dumber rather than smarter uh, in that sense. So, yeah, so it's interesting. I I don't know. I would like to see more movies where if you feel the need to tip have a movie take place in a foreign country, just translate it into the English, into the language you want to have it in. And, and the accent doesn't matter. Although I guess for most of the movie going public, they haven't seen quite enough movies with bad accents in them to make the thing, not part of the spectacle of it in the first place. Part of what makes it transgressive for what, for what it's worth. This was a feature of a lot of Italian cinema where, uh, uh, everyone would speak there, especially like films with large casts, like, uh, um, thinking of like Bertolucci's Novacento or something like that, which had an all, star international cast everyone spoke their own language and uh and was dubbed over Uh, and like post dubbing was a practice in italian cinema since um like uh uh since open city i think like when they couldn't in in the post-war period when they they couldn't do sync sound for uh practical or technological reasons right and it just became it just became the norm uh and that like uh so you'd have these you'd have these scenes where actors would act with each other speaking different languages and everyone would just be dubbed uh into whatever market the film was being being released in as it went which is a you know a, a pretty decent uh, uh, solution to this problem by the way that is the netflix solution to the problem and they have you know the issue of kind of global day and date releases of um their series their movies and series a lot if you ever don't just click next episode but watch to the end of a netflix show maybe just the final episode of a uh, of a series but the uh you know the credits of a of a netflix film they will show you the voice actors who dub all the international versions and there can be a dozen or more you know of the of of the the french version and the polish version and the brazilian portuguese version and the portuguese portuguese version and the you know uh and the 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 quebecois french version and the french french version and the whole you know and on and on um into uh into every market that netflix that netflix operates in and so this is this is you know actually sort of an interesting thing that is uh a sort of current topic in mm-hmm. entertainment. Now people seem not to like this film, Pete. Like I, I'm looking at it mm-hmm. on on Rotten Tomatoes. It has a uh a fifty one. People call out the convolutedness of the plotting, the uh the luridness of a lot of the spectacle, uh and you know, condemn the movie for this this reason as a sort of um what is a convoluted skin flick or something like that? Uh, are these people right? <laughs> are these people are these people correct to condemn to condemn this film for these things? Uh, uh, this is it's interesting. I think it's hard to say that they're wrong. But one thing that I think is becoming clear is that Jennifer Lawrence is to an extent trolling all of us, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Certainly the murmurings of the uh, elderly people in the theater, because I saw this in the middle of the day, uh, just because I was I was actually recovering from surgery and in a, uh, having had a day off from work. And I was just like, oh, I'm going to go to the movie theater and watch 
Red Sparrow. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of people Definitely. There. A lot just, of were- just the tonic that your ailing body needed. Right? <laughs> I mean, I wanted to be ready for the podcast today. But uh, but there were a lot of elderly people there. And you got the sense that they liked the idea of seeing a young actress in a kind of movie that they recognized as familiar to themselves, which is a spy movie about the Soviet Union, which this wasn't. But it sort of was, right? And then the degree to which it was hugely graphic uh, really seemed to turn some of them off. And it reminds me also of Mother, another movie where which got panned by audiences, where the main problem, yes, the movie was catastrophic in various sorts of ways. But the main issue is that people had an idea of what the movie was based on the fact that Jennifer Lawrence was in it, at least partially, that turned out to not be accurate. Sure. They, the they wanted they wanted like sil- they wanted like Silver Linings playbook for espionage. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting to consider I, well, one thing I've written about on overthinking it a couple of times is the idea that these celebrity pers- personas are constructed and we should not make the mistake of attributing the agency of the actual person to what their public persona ends up doing or saying. So if you and the big, big example I gave was like Kelly, uh, Katy Perry, right? Katy Perry and Russell Brand break up. We should not judge from Katy Perry's artistic oeuvre any sort of understanding of what happened in their relationship. Katy Perry, the singer is a different entity and the public figure is a different entity than Katy Perry, the private human being. And one thing that Jennifer Lawrence seems to be trying to do with this body of work is show us the difference, I guess, in the difference between Jennifer Lawrence of the Hunger Games, Katniss Everdeen and Jennifer Lawrence, as a performance artist who seems to be more in the winter's bone direction of things when, when she has the power and agency to pick her own projects, she seems to pick things that are like pretty brutal and dark and that is fine. You know, it's great, uh, but it's not what people know her for. And she's made enough money that I don't think she's worried about it at the moment. Joy was not that long ago and doubled its budget. You know, like like pe- people, I was reading people saying like, could she afford to make so many flops in a row? And it's like, dude, you know, like, like the last X-Men movie was like two years ago. And the other thing is that like, she can go to Japan and make a commercial for $10 million anytime she wants to, you know? Yeah. And also, she also carried any amount of box office this movie made at all. I think I think it's pretty safe to say that like nobody's going to be like, "Hey, did you guys hear that Jeremy Irons is in this Russian sex movie?" Dude, let's go, let's go watch it. <laughs> Can we need the guy from Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, the guy from the Time Machine. He's slumming it again. Oh man, put it on the calendar, right? Like, now, granted, I love Jeremy Irons. Scar from The Lion King is one of the great cinematic villains, but uh, and he's great in this movie. Uh, well, he's really good he's serviceably good for most of this movie and really great in one scene in this movie <laughs> but uh but jennifer lawrence carries this movie on her shoulders on her naked shoulders and uh I- i'm curious to see what direction this goes in because these movies do have a tension this movie and mother and even to an extent i guess joy and even the david o russell pictures have a tension with David O. Russell, he kind of dances on the edge of the knife a little bit with it a little bit more. The director seems on board with engaging with the public persona of Jennifer Lawrence and also the uh, the kind of the, seems, the project she seems to want to do. Uh, are we going to see Jennifer Lawrence get darker even than this? 
Are we going to see a sort of sustained dark Jennifer Lawrence, angry Jennifer Lawrence, violence that is like not willing to be America's sweetheart in the way that it seemed people wanted her to be when she tripped up going upstairs to accept the Oscar or whatever it was? Well, by, the, by the way, right, like if that is in fact what she wants, she has a model of what that career looks like in this movie in Charlotte Rampling, right? Who does that? She does these incredibly, she's a wonderful actress, but does this like really, really rough stuff, you know? Um, and has been in, uh, uh, has been in a lot of films where she's like, you know, conspiring to hide a murder or something like that, yeah. and and uh, and just really does not shy away from the 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 darkest of the dark. I I actually yeah. really admire her. It's really interesting that she's the mentor figure. Yeah, <laughs> who I'm being like, if you and and the idea that that. It's interesting to think about this and to think about what happened to Jennifer Lawrence that caused her to take this role based on some of her interviews, which seems to me that taking this role is to an extent a response to her naked pictures being leaked online. And the idea that maybe she can't be this this idea of like, oh, she would be America's sweetheart. She would make another action movie. She would make another big tentpole. She's going to make a bunch of movies where Matthew McConaughey is kind of leaning sideways onto her on the movie poster. <laughs> and both of their heads are photoshopped in somebody else's bodies because they didn't have time to show up for the poster photo shoot. Right. Like she's not going to be the next Kate Hudson. And uh, <laughs> but and, that, and like the world is not willing. The, the, the idea of doing of having Kate Hudson's career is to Jennifer Lawrence in real life as the Russian state is to Jennifer Lawrence's character in Red Sparrow. It is like, we could provide for you. We could give you everything. You could be America's sweetheart, and you need to give back to us. Whereas her experience of it is, you poop on me and poop on me and poop on me and degrade me and bandy me around like I'm your property. Screw you. I'm going to do what I want. <laughs> right? Like, uh, well, it, it's, the analogy is interesting because then it's like, well, screw you. I'm going to do what you want. And yet I'm going to stick around and I'm going to become this mole yeah. in the system <laughs> and continue to screw around. Uh, yeah, of course she's a mole. Are yeah. Sure? I mean, spoilers for this movie. At the end of it, you hear uh, the American agent play the music cue to basically say, hey, I'm still here, which strongly implies um, that uh, that connection is still there and will be. Uh, I was about to say exploited, but will be used and will, will, will come up in her future. I but wasn't it, so sure. Yeah, exactly. Ahead. Was that more? Was that more the that their kind of relationship was alive and not, you know, hadn't been just a farce, right? Like, because there is a lot of uh, there is a in this movie there is a lot of like what even is real anyway? That sort of spy movie theme of like, well, what if we're all just deceiving each other all the time? What if I've only what if I've only been doing this elaborate podcast with you for the last 10 years because i want to know what you think about the cadillac ct6 you know? <laughs> that's a long con that's an extended wheelbase con right there <laughs> yeah exactly and that uh that that um right like that's that is kind of a theme of the movie though not not really cashed out i mean i i i don't know i i guess i don't like things that are super schematic but it it is nice when things hang together and like is this movie about the thing that people say at the beginning of the movie which is that i make my own luck uh is it about the uh what the guy says in the the beginning of the second act which is that everybody needs a friend uh before he tries to sexually before her boss tries to like put the moves on her um 
does uh, is this movie about uh the relationship between Jennifer Lore or is there some sort of like geopolitical lesson here where she you know she manages to BS the BSer she manages to con the con artists and like Charlotte Rampling is the matron sitting there in that last scene as she's being give, given the award you know she's finally come around and like uh, earned her trust but she's done it by doing absolutely uh nothing of of what what she's she's asked for i mean i you know i don't know so uh so i mean i i didn't take that scene at the end with the music as being like oh the american agent is still yeah. running her you right know? okay yeah it's ambiguous it's it's certainly left open for interpretation i right? definitely uh, go ahead go for it my wish fulfillment is that you know uh we talk about the geopolitics right uh Jennifer Lawrence's character is not ideological, right? She's not like, I hate Russia. I want to help America. All that kind of stuff. She's just in it for herself, and she's in it for her mom. Uh, Jeremy Irons' character, the Russian general, uh, he is ideological, right? He has this whole thing about, you know, uh, Stalin, there's Stalin, that, and the other, and I want to, you know, screw you know screw Russia, screw this country. I'm going to, you know, help the good guys, that sort of thing. My uh, wish fulfillment kicked in and was like, oh, yeah, Jennifer Lawrence, she's with the good guys because she helped out Jeremy Irons and didn't turn him over uh and, and and she wants to play ball with the americans and that's why the american called with the with the little music cue to say hey i'm still here see i love jeremy irons's character in this movie and and i think sussing out exactly what happens to him at the end of this movie is worth it so jeremy irons is this high-ranking russian general military guy i think whatever he is general colonel something or other and he's been feeding information to the americans for a long time, largely because his wife was not allowed to get treatment from an American doctor and died. And that's one of the big motivating factors for him. And he comes to Jennifer Lawrence late in the movie. He comes to Dominica or whatever her name is, Katya. I mean, it, it, the movie kind of poses the question, whatever her name is, uh, and says, hey, I've been the mole. If you tell them that I'm the mole, then they'll believe you and then you can be the mole and you can carry on my work. Right. And the whole movie has been explain like been fleshing out this idea that everybody has something that they need that makes them vulnerable. And and Jeremy Irons says, think you can carry on my work. I'll sacrifice myself for the greater good. And he has this great scene where he goes home. And this is my favorite scene in the movie. And maybe the main thing about this movie I'll cite in future uh, reference to this movie is he goes home and he puts on some opera on the Victrola or something. Because <laughs> I don't know what year this movie is supposed to take place in really. And he pours himself a tumbler of fine liquor and he lights himself a cigar and he gets in the biggest comfiest chair that this movie's budget could afford and uh, and he just sits there and you get the sense that he's just like he's just reveling in the sensation of enjoying life for one last time before the russian government assassins bust in the window and murder him no no and, they're, and not, you, they're not gonna bust in the window remember what he does right before he sits down he comes in the you? he comes in the apartment he closes the door he thinks for a second and he opens the door a crack and leaves it ajar <laughs> Which is so wonderfully It's symbolic. perfect. It's perfect, right? Because <laughs> it's like it both shows the fact that 
he would he wants them to come in and it also reflects that this is his emptiness this is the thing that makes him vulnerable because he wants to have this like beautiful death scene <laughs> this like beautiful martyr death scene and and at the very end of the movie when because jennifer lawrence doesn't sell him out jennifer lawrence uses the opportunity to sell out her uncle who is a total d-bag and a half uh, more more than that and uh and he but gets who murdered. is i mean to be fair who is not not uh guilty of this particular thing though no, so those Loyal to his country, but nothing else, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although also just snappy dressing and shoulder pads, I think, is the other thing that he's seen. He has some sharp suits, sharp plaid suits in this movie. Uh, but at any rate, the last scene when Jennifer Lawrence is getting the medal, she looks down and you see Jeremy Irons look up and he's like, he like looks scared, right? He, he's like, oh boy, what have I got myself into? And my sense is that Jennifer Lawrence is now in a position that she has incredible leverage on Jeremy Irons. Sure. And that she's going to use this for whatever she wants to do it for because she found his emptiness. And his emptiness was that open door, smoking that cigar and loving that chair and that music, waiting for evil Boris with the mock turtleneck, the tactic, the tactical turtleneck that uh, I didn't invent the turtleneck. I just uh, perfected it. She says a tactical garment. <laughs> I introduced the tactical garment, as Archer would say. And, <laughs> and, and like, she knows that he wanted that. That was his sex that he wanted, right? He wanted that degree of intercourse that was the consummation he wanted for right. his life yeah yeah he and, wanted to yeah. be to, to have his skull penetrated by a bullet <laughs> <laughs> right yeah. that was... so he could join his wife whose picture is shown in the foreground in that wonderful scene where it's like this is gonna be perfect i'm totally gonna die it's gonna be great this is gonna be like the godfather it's gonna be awesome <laughs> and like uh and so nope. <laughs> yeah so so a little bit right like this movie suffers from i would like to from I would like to watch the more interesting sequel itis, right? Mm. Um, like it doesn't show you the most the most interesting parts. I'm actually, you know, uh, appearances to the contrary, notwithstanding, I, I take no great pleasure in going into a darkened room for two and a half hours to watch Jennifer Lawrence be beaten and raped. Like that's not no, no, that's, that's not the good part. Of this movie. Yeah, that's not that's not the that's not the good times. The the uh, and and b- by the way, plot wise, like you saw it coming, like pretty much instantaneously, right? That she was going to put together a variety of things that that would end with her uh, victory over her uncle, right? Like that, it was clear from almost act one that that was going to be the plot of this movie right so like i kind of want i so there was a little bit of kind of not playing to the top of your intelligence right like there, there was a little bit of of kind of uh pretending to be ignorant right like um which never makes for the greatest, uh, never makes for the greatest storytelling, right? Like the, the hard thing about, uh, you know, Oedipal blindness, right? Like, uh, and I mean Oedipal in the, the, um, uh, who wrote, the, who wrote Oedipus? Aeschylus, right? In the, uh, Sophocles. Oh, Sophocles. There you go. In the Sophoclean sense, not the, uh, not the Freudian sense. The, the thing about the blindness to your own identity and to your own situation is that it's very hard to write convincingly, right? Like, it has to be really earned, uh, and it, and it's not here. And and I thought I I'm not sure what I think about about what I'm about to say, but this was the rare movie that made me um, well t- two things to just to cash out the previous thought, right? Like I I would like to see the next movie where everybody is playing to the top of their intelligence, right? Like where where the the players are sort of equally matched, uh, rather rather than this one where. Um, 
the the you know sort of downtrodden person turns out to be the most powerful after all even if there is kind of a thematic framework for understanding why that would be an important plot uh in this movie the other thing is i feel like this movie might have benefited just in the tightening up a little bit uh from the non-linear trick that a lot of movies play now which is you know the um you know the uh you know we open on Jennifer Lawrence being tortured in the shower right the 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 lights come on the water turns uh, b- scalding hot the the techno music blares she screams smash cut black frame title card 3 years earlier and she's on stage at the, you know what I mean? On stage at the, at the ballet, right? Like, cause, cause the, a little bit of the, she's sort of presented in the movie as a cipher, right? Like as, as this sort of, as this penetrable slash impenetrable, like translucent slash opaque, uh, sort of thing. Like an interesting image in the movie is kind of, uh, when she exacts her revenge on the, the fellow dancers who, um, who attacked her, who broke her leg who conspired to break her leg uh she finds them in the shower um and they are uh obscured by steam right until you get close enough and they become you know they become um uh visible so there's this like uh opaque translucent there's this like uh you know um knowable unknowable visible invisible penetrable impenetrable kind of uh kind of uh, the dichotomy that's that's being played with and she's definitely a cipher the whole th- for the whole thing and like the whole the whole point of those uh you know here's how it happened here's how it got this way even even if it if it uh relies on simplistic psychology is to kind of like make the make the invisible visible right to like give a reason give a give a reason that the 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 thing is this way and that also like there there was a little bit of an ocean's elevening um at the end where you saw her back through through the uh saw her back through the movie at the crucial moments um putting the uh uh you know putting the pieces together of the of the you know tightening the news putting the pieces of the trap together opening the bank account getting the the uh glass with the dna black light thing on it and stuff like that in a way that like it sort of it sort of didn't need right and and the the by the way if you if you want to see the the same trick done uh with great style and aplomb by an understated uh classic of american cinema uh, i direct you to the film wild things starring matt dillon kevin bacon denise richards and nev campbell uh where all the important scenes in the movie are are take place during or after the credits right like everything you need to know to understand (laughs) the mysteries of of the movie like the crucial moments at which stuff actually happened are uh are played in the credits also uh it's it's unaccountably lurid and um you know features a threesome in a pool which you know if 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 that's what you go in for uh could could not of 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 threesome in a pool movies it's probably uh the 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 only one that's an underrated modern american classic i i I do feel like one of the advantages that a non-linear narrative would have given this movie is the opportunity to have more ballet because they sure made went to a lot of trouble to create the ballet scene for this movie and it's a shame that they stopped so early on because the ballet and the dance you know i am dancing for you is and the sort of what it is to be a ballet dance partner 
is pretty informative for the rest of the movie, yeah. but it all of course sort of stops pretty early. Yeah, what do you think, quick, Mark? A couple quick things on that. I believe Justin Peck, um, the very renowned uh, American dance choreographer, uh, was responsible for that intro sequence. Right. Again, to the point of, like, wow, they went through all that trouble, you know, of uh, of bringing this choreographer and CGI and Jennifer Lawrence onto the body and and this kind of stuff, uh, only to uh, have it be that one scene. Uh, but it was a really good scene. Right. And uh, as she was going through Sparrow School, I, w- I kept thinking about, well, OK, she's undergoing an extremely uh, punishing physical and psychological regimen. Well, she, she she made it to the top of the heap at the yeah. Bourse of Lois. She, she's been there. She's done that. To yeah. a certain extent. None of this should be new. <laughs> like, up to and including having her legs broken, right? It's <laughs> like, you, you deal with so much crap as a ballerina, so. But, yeah. yeah. And, and I believe as well that the Bolshoi Bailao, in, in real life, has a history of backstabbing and leg-breaking and so on and so forth. Uh, just drama and intense competition amongst his players to get to the top of the heap. So, verisimilitude, you guys. That, that, something like that happened. <laughs> the cold war guys that really happened <laughs> yeah it shattered into a thousand pieces well this podcast never ended it just shattered into a thousand pieces you can find those pieces in the comments section so go to overthinking it and uh let us know what you thought about about red sparrow or just leave us a uh, a fish fish eggplant emoji um if you want let us know what happened tonight now we may be uh watching the oscars individually or we may be watching weird al yankovic uh individually but wherever we are we'll be back for you next week and uh you can find us until then at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. In Putinist Russia, pop culture scrutinize you. Hey, Pete. No fuzz, yeah. no feathers. To the devil. <laughs> See, it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs>